Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get into our guest today, I'm very excited about Melissa Carper. Wanted to let you know that you can stay in touch with us by signing up for the Basic Folk newsletter. We send out a once a month email blast to let you know what's happening with us and you can sign up for that right now at basicfolk.com you can also follow us on social media at basic folk pod we're a listener supported podcast and if you're listening to this episode in real time we are in the middle of our, our fall fundraiser and we're asking you to make a contribution and help support your listening does not take a lot to make a difference you can go to basicfolk.com and make a contribution right now And thank you. Okay, Melissa Carper, upright bassist, singer, and songwriter Melissa Carper has been playing in bands since she took up the position of bass in her family band at the age of 12. She grew up with a reverence for country music in her small-town Nebraska family. The original Carper family band toured regionally on the weekends at Elks Lodges, VFWs, and small bars. Little Melissa made $50 a gig, which allowed her to take her friends out for dinner and gave her an early sense of what it was like to be a paid musician. She attended school for music but ended up leaving two and a half years in and began her rambling. Melissa's lived in Nebraska, New York, Alaska, New Orleans, Arkansas, and Austin, just to name a few. She usually has stayed around a place for a couple of years until she moves on. Along the way, she's formed many bands like the new version of the Carper family, Sad Daddy, and the Buffalo Gals with her partner, Rebecca Paddock. In recent years, she's been releasing albums under her own name, which is strange because she does not like being the center of attention. Her writing is filled with humor Numerous quips, even though she claims to have a slow wit. Her classic country sound is unique in that her writing is sharp, her delivery is relaxed, and her voice is unreal. She spent a lot of time studying the voices of Hank Williams and Leadbelly to develop that honeyed yet raw sound. Melissa Carper is the real deal. Go check out her new album, Ramblin' Soul, and enjoy our conversation. Right now, we're going to check out a version of this Odetta song she has on the new record. Hit or Miss is the track, and then we'll get to our conversation with Melissa Carper on Basic Folk. Ain't nobody 
Harper, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, I love your music. I love your new record. And I'm like very pumped to get to know you a little bit. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Cindy. You grew up in rural Nebraska in North Platte. Is that how you say it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I looked it up on a map and I kept zooming out to see when I would recognize a town. And I never did. (laughs) Yeah, it really did feel like I was... In the middle of nowhere, in western Nebraska, for sure. You were playing and traveling regionally in your family band. So for those who don't know, your mom sang and played rhythm guitar. Your older brother was on lead guitar, younger brother on percussion. You were on bass. Dad was the manager. You played country music together, and it was like your mom's dream to have this band. Um, So you played in this band when you from when you were 12 years old until you graduated high school. So I've talked to people before on this podcast who've been in like family bands and it just was kind of like normal for you. You know, it was like your normal experience, but it's like actually like pretty unusual um, to grow up that way. So when did you come to realize that this was like a, a special experience with your family and how do you reflect on the family band now? I guess when I was young, I realized, you know, none of my friends were doing it. Nobody, so I, I did know it was a little bit unusual. Um, and I and my and I had money already. My parents would pay me and none of my friends had money. So that was kind of fun. I, I would take my friends out to like Pizza Hut or something. And uh, <laughs> but Popular. yeah, yeah, well, my. <laughs> My friends always thought it was pretty cool. And, you know, I don't I don't know that I came to really appreciate it. By the time I was in my 30s, I was I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I got to grow up with with that kind of background and, and you know, really realize how much influence my parents music and had had on me, like the music they listened to and also the music we learned how to play. Sorry, that's my dog, Georgia. She wants a walk. <laughs> how did playing together in your family band help nurture your relationship with your family and then how does playing with people now continue to nurture your relationships yeah um that's a good question there's definitely something special about how music can can bond people and uh, I guess bond like you bond you with your bandmates and and with your family and as far you know such a long time ago it's it's hard to like look back and Georgia shh I'm so sorry I (laughs) Georgia go lay down go lay down she's very stubborn right now for some reason but um, (laughs) um, I, I can say you know now and have, having been in lots of different bands with lots of different people, it actually, it, it kind of feels like those people become your family. You have been in many ensembles during your career. Um, so there was the original Carper family and then a newer 
uh, group that you had that was also called the Carper Family, Sad Daddy, the Maybells, Buffalo Gals, and like many more that I probably don't know the names of. But how did the way you like learn to be in a band? Um, and I'm assuming like you learned a lot of that stuff from your family band, like playing together, touring, connecting with others. How did that impact the type of bandmate you are? Hmm. Well, I guess, uh, you know, what? one thing that, that is cool that I, we got to, I got to learn how to sing harmony when I was young. We worked out, we would practice, our family would practice and we would work out harmony parts to some of the songs, not all the songs. That's something that I think is really cool to learn when you're young. Cause I think it does, it, it it's a little harder maybe as you get older to learn it. And um, mm-hmm. it's kind of always been a crucial part of any band I've been in to work out the harmony singing. And it's kind of one of my favorite things to do really. So we used to play gigs that were at four hours long. We played from nine to one in the morning and my, yeah, I know. And my little brother was younger than me. He was like, you know, maybe eight or nine when we first started. So I, I don't know. I think just, uh, I must've built up an endurance back then for it. And I don't know, you just, it's it's kind of hard work after yeah. even after the gig's over you're loading up the car and driving home and it's kind of mm-hmm. a, kind of exhausting so so I don't I don't know what kind of bandmate I've become I guess just like you know I enjoy rehearsing working out arrangements and and harmonies and and it's also you know really important that everyone in the band kind of contributes in in other ways to all kinds of stuff to be done. So I guess that I've always been that kind of a bandmate as well. Mm. You were also talking about earlier about how your parents would like pay you for these gigs. Like you'd make at least $50 a show. And then you were talking about taking your friends out to eat and having money when you were a kid. So with this in mind as someone who's like basically always been paid for, I'm assuming like basically been paid for gigs. How did that help shape your value as a performer when it comes to like being paid and making money as a musician it's actually kind of it's kind of funny well my so a lot of those gigs i remember they paid 200 dollars, and this was back in the 80s uh and it was for a four-piece band and we were playing like the eagles elks and moose and that kind of thing so 200 dollars, and my my parents wouldn't keep any extra money for gas or anything and they they gave us all $50. They gave me 50 and my brother, my young, my older brother and my younger brother, we, we all got $50. And in, I remember in the nineties, I was still getting $50. <laughs> so I was like, wait a second. <laughs> when does, when does the wage go up for this job? You're like, never, sometimes never. never. So sometimes, well, actually, I mean, I've had it go down before, um, depending on the town you're living in. Some towns, uh, the gigs don't pay that great because there's so many musicians that want the gigs and and uh, like uh, moving from so down here, down here in Texas, which is one of the reasons we came back here, the the gigs really pay pretty good, and you can also get a lot of private parties and extra things. But um, man, uh, moving from uh, so we moved from Texas to Arkansas, and that that was a bit of a pay cut. And then from Arkansas, mm. Arkansas to Nashville was actually even more of a pay cut. It felt like, uh, 
you know, initially there, at least the, the, the types of gigs we were getting didn't even pay $50 each, you know, it wow. was, it was more like, well, we, we got to play, you know, we got to, we can't just stop playing. So we'll, we'll get, make what we can get. <laughs> is that just cause Nashville is like oversaturated? I think that's a big reason for it. And I, anytime you first move to a music town, especially if you don't know a lot of folks, it, you know, it can take a while before you're, you're getting the better gigs. And, uh, but yeah, I'd say probably a lot of the venues do take advantage of the fact that there's so many musicians that want to play, play there. Mm. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> Which town pays the best? Well, so far of all the places I've lived, Austin, Texas is, oh, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, I've only lived in, uh, I've lived up in Arkansas and, and in a few, well, I've toured all around Arkansas, so I know, you know, the different areas up there. And then Nashville, I've lived in. I, I did live in New York City briefly, and the gigs didn't pay that great there either. So, Growing up, country music was revered in your house, um, and it sounds like there's a great record collection going on there. How do you think the way that music was treated in your house has impacted the way you listen to and appreciate music? Um, yeah. So growing up, my dad loved to put on records all the time. I'd say he, even though it was my mom's dream to, to be in a, in, you know, a country band. And I'd say my dad was like the super music fan appreciator. Yeah. I just was lucky to always have music on. And I do remember when when I chose to put a record on, like I love to listen to Hank Williams and Patsy Cline. Those were my two favorites that my parents had that I would put on all the time and, and just, you know, kind of really just take it in, just, just listen and, and absorb it. I uh, went, went on to, you know, discover a lot of music my parents didn't listen to after that. And I'd say I spent a good deal of my twenties, uh, like going to the libraries and and taking records and CDs home and and I I did something you're not supposed to do and I I dubbed them onto tapes because that's <laughs> that that's how I usually listened to music back then was was on a tape player I did that for many years and then and and then when I went to school uh, in Lincoln Nebraska for to study the upright bass I was studying classical music and I spent a lot of time in the music library there. Oddly, you know, the last maybe even 20 years of my life or 15 years of my life, I don't listen as much to music. Like I, I actually, I actually like to have peace and quiet, (laughs) 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 but I feel like that all those years I was listening was really super important. Uh, You started playing bass in the fourth grade. You got to choose it out of the options in the string program and I read that you always got a big car so that you can fit your bass in it. <laughs> and I've also read that you're pretty shy and don't necessarily like too much attention, which interviews must be fun for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> like you'll play side stage on bass, even if you're singing lead. And it seems like the upright has been a great companion to you and, you know, helped shape who you are. So, can you talk about your relationship with that instrument? Yeah, um, I feel 
really lucky I got to start on bass, uh, on the upright bass in particular. Um, I did play electric bass in the family band because we didn't know how to amplify the upright bass. And also, it would have been really hard on my little fingers to be playing upright bass four for hours. four hours. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, but um, yeah, so fourth, it's, it's kind of incredible that North Platte, Nebraska had a string program. And, and a stream program where they started kids in fourth grade. So uh, I, I feel mm. really lucky I, I got to grow up and start on bass that young. They have half-side basses for kids. Also, I was lucky to have a string teacher, the orchestra teacher in both junior high and, and high school was a bass player. And he had majored in, in bass, had majored in music performance with bass as his instrument. So he started giving me lessons and and uh, also getting me ready to audition for colleges and stuff. So that was pretty cool, too. The nice thing about being a bass player is because everybody needs a bass player. And it's like, you know, crucial in every band. So, you know, I always have been able to join a band and, and find work. And mm. um, I actually really I, I really enjoy the rhythm like the the that I'm a rhythm player because I I love I love rhythm and um yeah it's it's a it's just been a really fun instrument to to be able to play and and I'm also glad that that I'm doing something a little different I suppose then I've had I've mm. been I've been doing some rhythm guitar as well like when Rebecca and I when we have our duo the Buffalo Gals um I'll play guitar mm-hmm. some and she'll be on fiddle and then she'll play guitar some and I'll be on bass. So, and then I've learned a little climber banjo too. I love climber banjo, but that's cool. But yeah, um, uh, I've always felt super fortunate. I started young on bass and I'm not sure why I chose it because I was, I was that, yeah. I was so little. It might've been my parents influence too. Like, Hey, we need a bass player in the family band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about it in terms of like, and I don't know if I'm I'm just sort of like projecting this on you, but if you are like, if you were somebody who felt shy on stage, it must have been nice to have an instrument that's like basically your size, like next to you. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's so yeah. true. I've I've also appreciated that part of it, just kind of to be able to hide behind it a little bit. And, and to also, you know, to be people's bass player. Maybe I'm just the bass player and a harmony singer. And, and like, I, I, I do that with Brennan Lee a lot. I'll um, uh, be, you know, her backup person. And I actually really enjoy that. It's a completely enjoyable, stress-free position. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You talk about how your singing voice was shaped by classic country music, jazz, and blues singers like people like Jimmy Rogers, Billie Holiday, Lead Belly, just to name a few. What was it like to develop your singing voice, which sounds a, like a lot, like remarkably like your speaking voice? Um, I think the other day was the first time I heard I watched um, a video of yours on TikTok uh, where you were <laughs> speaking, and I was like wow, this is like your speaking voice and your singing voice are like so um, satisfyingly similar. But what was it like for you to develop your singing voice? What do you like about where you're at with it now? 
Yeah. Uh, I feel like my, yeah, my voice keeps changing and, and developing, you know, as, as you get older, of course it does. But uh, what I would do back when I was, you know, I actually had, had decided to learn a bunch of old country songs to busk on the street. Um, this was at when I had dropped out of college <laughs> and I, mm. I, I started sing, sing some buskers and I'm like, you know, was really attracted to the freedom of that, of how that looked. So I was like, well, I have to learn more songs. You know, I have to know all the words because in, in the family country band, my mom would sing a lot of them. And so would my brother, John. And I, I sang lead on a few. So uh, I just, at that point when I was like, you know, in my early twenties, I would listen to a bunch of Hank Williams and Jamie Rogers songs. And I would try to, for some reason, I was really obsessed with trying to phrase like they phrased. So I would still, this is still tape player days for me. And I, I would like, you know, listen to just like five seconds or of, a, of Hank Williams singing. And then I'd press stop and I'd try to sing it just like he said, you know, sang it rewind. And I kept doing that over and over and over to try to, to try to phrase like they, they were phrasing. And also I think to try to get some of that same vocal quality as well. I, when I discovered Lead Belly that I loved Lead Belly, he's somebody that I, that I really tried to copy his vocal tone. And I felt like, um, cause he had such a huge deep voice, you know, so much to it. And I, I, you know, I was like, felt like my voice was kind of thin at that point. So I would just try to really imitate, you know, the tone, the type of tone he got. And I felt it without ever taking voice lessons, because I've never taken any, I felt like that really, that really opened up a part of my voice trying to get that particular sound. So, and oh, wow. Yeah. A lot of your writing combines sadness and humor as a, as like a lot of the classic country music that you grew up listening to. It kind of does that as well. You do it so well. Um, why does that combination work in songs? And what do you think is the connection between sadness and humor? Yeah. Um, it, at first, I don't know if it was like a conscious thing I was doing or not. Um, writing songs that that were, were sad and, and then funny at the same time. I, I think... Um, Definitely what I noticed after I was doing it is that I, I think that when you get people to, to listen, draw them in, get them to laugh a little at a little something, then they're kind of, they're drawn in sort of mm -hmm. emotionally. And then if you, then all of a sudden, like if it turns a little bit sad, they're, they're right there with you too. I, I know John Prine does that a lot too. And, uh, mm -hmm. I, I love his writing so much. I feel like he really knows how to draw you in emotionally. Yeah, it just seems to work. The combination of those two. Uh, I, I wrote a song called "My Baby Don't Like Me No More," and it's obviously kind of a very sad situation to be in when, if you're in a relationship and the person you're with doesn't like you anymore. But the song is is funny, so I think. Uh, it kind of helps you also get through the sad situation if you can kind of make mm. make light of it a little bit. Yeah, I don't know you as a person at all, but just from um, and I've read people say that like you're very funny 
And I feel like you're like the kind of person who if something, even if like a phrase is not funny, like you have the type of like comedic delivery that would make it funny because you do it in your songs like all the time that, you, <laughs> you know, something, you know, you'll just sing something and it's not supposed to be funny, but I'm like, this is hilarious. Like, I don't know. But um, yeah, I'd love to know a little bit more about where you get your sense of humor from. Um, I guess uh, growing up, uh, my dad had a great sense of humor. He was always cracking jokes and kind of like making himself the butt of the joke a lot of times, too. We would, uh, as a family, we watched a lot of comedy movies. And, and yeah, I think just humor was a big part of, of growing up. And I, I've had a lot of great, great friends with great senses of, senses of humor. And I don't know, I think that's one of the, my pleasures in life is, mm. is being around somebody who's funny. And but for, for me, writing is a, I'm, I feel like I'm not, I don't have like a quick wit. I have kind of a slow wit. So if I can write something that's funny, if I can take, take the time to formulate something that's funny, then that's what works for me. How would you classify slow wit? Slow, well, I can't really, I feel like I can't think of anything funny to say right off the bat. Like I gotta, some of my friends are just so like, so quick on the draw, like to be, to say something funny and I don't know a quick kind of response and I feel like I just don't have that like I have huh. to I have to think about it so what movies would your family watch growing up that the funny movies um I I remember one of the first ones uh that I remember uh watching as a family was Tootsie and we watched that several times I actually saw that in the theater even when it was coming out. Whoa. Yeah, that's how old I am. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then, like, uh, Monty Python, Holy Grail, we watched that a lot. Uh, when Harry Met Sally, I guess that was a little later. A lot of, like, sitcoms, too, we would watch as a family, like Family Ties. I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, yeah. With with Michael. Alex P. Keaton. Yeah, yeah. The, the Cosby Show, and I don't, I, we would watch comics too, like we watched uh, Bill Cosby and, and uh, Richard Pryor. And... Man, we also listened to a ton of Bill Cosby, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm like done with Bill Cosby now, but like when that news first broke, it was like incredibly heartbreaking and sad. For sure, it's so hard, hard to, I mean, the the image that he portrayed was so completely different. It was really hard to. It's like very manipulating and Mm -hmm. just, I feel like, so deceived. Yeah, I know. You've classified yourself as a rambling soul, which is actually the title of your new record. Um, You've moved to many different places over the years. Just to name a few, Nebraska, New Orleans, Austin, Nashville, Arkansas, New York, Alaska, uh, and more. Can you talk about the first time that you moved, which I think was from your hometown of North Platte to across the state in Lincoln, Nebraska, like what that move was like for you and what it's like for you now? How has that process evolved for you? Um, Yeah, I know it was super exciting, of course, to leave home for the first time. I had been given our, our family van the 1980 dodge van so i got to move everything in that van i I had lived a a really sheltered life in north platte so just to get out 
and Lincoln, Nebraska was a, a, a really big new world for me, even though it's a small, mm. even though it's a small city, it was pretty exciting to live there. Yeah. So that was the, the, the first time I moved in. And then I guess oh, I dropped out of school. I dropped out of college after about two and a half years. And, uh, one of my first adventures after dropping out of college was flying up to Alaska and working in a fish factory and mm. for a sum for a summer and that was super exciting um i'd say that was probably because i'd dropped out of school and gone so far away from home that was my first big adventure on my own and um i definitely realized at that point that i kind of had a a wild streak a, a very wild adventurous streak in me that was really ready to let go. <laughs> wow. Where in Alaska? I ended up in Petersburg, Alaska, which is in the southeast. It's one of the islands. And I uh, worked in a, a fish factory there for a summer. You actually came out when you were in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, so up to that point, if you're comfortable talking about this, what was your story like? Did you always know that you were gay? And how do you reflect back on your pre-coming out life? <laughs> I started really no- noticing that I, I liked, you know, I was falling in love with my little girlfriends <laughs> when I was mm. like our eight or nine. So I I knew when I was young and, and um, it was definitely hard because there it was the eighties in North Platte, Nebraska. And I didn't know anybody, you know, that, that was gay. And, and also my parents were very religious and, and that, that was a sin. And so I thought I was perverted. So it was definitely hard. And um, let's see, I think I was actually 23 when I, I did for the first time tell somebody. And that was my, my friend that from Lincoln, Nebraska, who told me he, he was like, I think you'll like Eureka Springs, Arkansas. So, <laughs> yeah. So he was the first person I told, and then, and then in Eureka, oh, was, you went to Eureka. You went to Eureka Springs for the gays. Well, you know, I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I think, oh. but I think my friend, <laughs> I think my friend knew when he was like, he was like, I should, oh. <laughs> I should take you. To, he was quite a bit older than me. He was like maybe ten years older than me, and mm-hmm. and uh, also a very free spirit. Um, I can't, he always had odd jobs and half the time he didn't have a job, but, uh, so yeah, he was like, he, he got in the van with me. He was like, yeah, let's move down there. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it was a good town to be in because there, were, it just felt like it was normal there. And that's, that's mm-hmm. nice to feel like yeah it was normal. Yeah. Cause it is normal. Cause it is normal. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've written about gay stuff. You've, you've yes, uh, I have. covered some gay themes on, on some of your songs. Like on your first album, you have the song uh, Christian Girlfriend about being raised religious where you were taught that it was a sin to be gay. And one message in the song is that you can be a Christian and you can also be gay. So can you share how you were able to come to that conclusion? I don't know if you identify as Christian and also how it feels to write about two things that seem like so personal, but wouldn't normally go together? Um, yeah. So 
I, maybe when I was writing the song, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, no, I think I did realize like, hey, you can be Christian and be gay. I'm sure I realized that at that point. I, that, that's actually an older song for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I wrote it 20 years ago or something. I sort of I, I, I identify as a spiritual person and I can I sort of identify as a Christian because I believe in Jesus Christ and and, and I but I don't. I believe a lot of what was written in the Bible is probably not that accurate, but (laughs) you know, as, but I, I, yeah. (laughs) So I was like, but I'm like, but I I like this Jesus guy still. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, sometimes when I'm writing something, I don't, I don't really know exactly why I, you know, it's, it, and uh, I, I wrote a song more recently called "Pray the Gay Away." I, I, have you read, um, read, listened to that song as well? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. So that that's an an even even gayer song. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Is that uh, on a solo? Where it, is that record? Pray, oh, song. Uh, yeah, "Pray the Gay Away" is on a Buffalo Gals band. It's called "Where the Heart Wants to Go." And actually, I co-wrote that song with Brendan Lee. It was her idea to write a song called "Pray the Gay Away." And she she played just like that first little bit of it for me. Well, once you listen to the song, you'll know what I'm talking about. The co- yeah, she played just the first first little chorus uh, bit, and I think she thought obviously it would be funny to mix a fundamental fundamentalist sounding you know gospel song with this you know type of theme. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess with with um, with bluegrass, it feels almost the same way. If if I'm writing a song in bluegrass style, and working with that theme, you just don't hear bluegrass songs that have that are you know discussing that. So it it, it feels like just a a progressive thing, I guess, to be doing. Which is strange because it seem it seems like it shouldn't be that progressive at this point, but yeah, but somehow it still is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have an affinity for big old cars. You have more than one song about an old car, including on the new album, the 1980 Dodge Van. When did you realize that you had this connection to cars and like what's it been like to express that in your writing? It seems kind of funny to talk about like... Uh, talk about cars after we were just talking about yeah. how profound it is to write about being gay in a bluegrass song. But listen, that's my question. That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I love this question. Um, before I wrote 1980 Dodge Van, I've, I've written a couple other car songs. And um, the first one was my old Chevy van. And that song's on the Daddy's Country Gold album. I guess writing that song was the first time I realized what a connection that that I had to that car. I had inherited that car from my family as well, actually, after my both of my parents died. I drove that car around probably seven or eight years, and I uh, lived in it some, moved moved around quite a bit in it. And, um, uh, of course, we I had my family memories as well that were attached to that car. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I sold it, I got really super sad. I didn't realize how sad I was going to be when I when I sold it. It was kind of more like selling a a home or a family heirloom. Or it was mm. it was just really really hard. I'd kind of wished for years that I wouldn't have sold it. 
And anyway, that's that's what I wrote that song, My Old Chevy Van, and realized how attached you, you can get to a car. But then I, I also realized it was not just the car, of course, but all the all the memories is really what it's about. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote a song um, for a, somebody else's car called I'd Never Sell Sue, and that's on a Buffalo Gals album, uh, Where the Heart Wants <laughs> to Go. And uh, have you heard that song, I'd Never Sell Sue? Yeah. Oh, okay. I- yeah. So that that was for for this gal's 1972 Ford pickup that we were driving around in it just a little bit. Mostly it just sat on the farm and uh, she had a a big new uh uh Ford what do they call it 1 150, is that right? Is that a truck or a van? Oh, it was a it was a truck. It was just a big huge new truck. Oh. That's what they F150. That's what it is. F150. Yeah. So <laughs> That's how much I, I know about cars, but um, uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, she they were driving around this big new Ford truck, and then the 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 other truck Sue was mostly just sitting on the farm, and they would take the garbage to the dump in that truck in Sue. In but Sue. but anyway, she she said I'd never sell Sue, and when she said that, then I I thought, well, that's a song. I've got to write that song, and it kind of <laughs> it was kind of my way of of making it better that I did sell my Chevy van. Mm. Um, so at that point, I had two car songs under my belt, and I, I guess I just kind of challenged myself to write a song about the 80 Dodge van just because I also had, you know, a lot of old memories and connections with that car. So, And mm. I, I like the way that the 80 Dodge van song turned out actually to be a pretty happy, high-energy song rather than a sad song like the Chevy van song. You're on your third record release as a front person, and you have like overcome shyness in a lot of ways, but you've never really wanted to be a band leader. You had to push yourself out of your comfort zone in order to, to go for that position. But why were you moved to actually do that, to push yourself on, out front, and how have you found all this attention? I, f- I feel like I never really intentionally even did it I don't really want to be in the front still, but when I made Daddy's Country Gold, I guess getting the response that I got for that album, and that I realized that I, I was going to need to do some Melissa Carper shows, which I really haven't done that much. I've mostly done shows with my bands, like Sad Daddy and the Buffalo Gals Band, and uh, which are my current bands. Or I'll back somebody up on bass, like uh, Brennan Lee. Um, I also play with Brennan and, and Kelly Willis in a trio. And then where we all trade songs, which is kind of my comfort zone, it being in a band where we all trade songs. But I guess making these albums that are Melissa Carper albums, I'm realizing I need to play Melissa Carper shows. So it's still not something I really want to do. I just feel like I have to do it now. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping that the more I do it, the more comfortable I, I get with it. Take it till you make it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the title track on the new album, Ramblin' Soul, the thesis, um, I feel like you you uh, said this, and this is kind of like the thesis of the song. If something isn't working for me and making me happy, or it seems I've gotten in a rut somewhere, then I move on to whatever the next thing is that feels right, or I get out of town for a bit to try to find some new inspiration. Um, so it seems like you and Rebecca are sticking around Bastrop, Texas, for a little bit. 
So what can you say about establishing and maintaining routine and remaining grounded in one place? Yeah, well, we've been back in Texas now for two years, and it's uh, been really nice. Is that a long time for you to stick in a place? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a long time for me to stay in the same house in the same town. Weird. Str- strangely, yeah, because even in Nashville, we moved from... We moved. We were there two years, and we moved one time. We probably lived about a year in each house we were in. And then in Arkansas, we were there three or four years, and we probably moved three times to different houses. I, same thing when I lived in Austin. Before that, I lived in maybe four different places. And I had also tried to move back to Arkansas, and I tried and I tried to move to West Virginia for like three months when I lived in yeah. Texas. So it was, yeah, I don't know what it is, but a lot of times it's, uh, it's been difficult. I actually, there's a part of me that that really wants stability and and wants a home, this, this same home. And, uh, so being on the, the same farm for two years, actually, it's funny at the beginning of this year, I was telling Rebecca, I was like, "I, I think I have to move off this farm if we don't get full electricity here, because I was like, I can't do another you know, summer where I'm sweating all the time and, and another winter oh, yeah. winter where I'm freezing all the time. Uh, actually, we have, we so we have solar electric that just isn't quite enough to heat or cool the house. Um, and and just a, a couple of weeks ago, the farmer per, put in full electric for our heater and our cooler. So we still, oh, we still have solar. Hooray. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little less rough in it. And, and um, we'll stick around here, you know, we love it on the farm. Like it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a tiny space. We, we rent a tiny house, so it's not enough room. And then we, we do use an outhouse. We don't have a toilet, which neither of us really mind that. But I think it's the room, not having enough room is, is kind of a problem sometimes. And then Rebecca wants to buy a house. She wants to own a house someday. And she'll probably be doing that within the next year or so. And that's going to, that's going to provide some stability and that but then i'm thinking it would be nice to have the texas home and then the arkansas home so i'm going to mm. i'm going to get the arkansas home that's my plan the song in a day goes by was written in 2014 after your dog betty died and you said it was difficult to go through my dad's death then my mom's death and then you um basically lost your younger brother to severe mental health issues. Personality is completely different now. Um, And you said Betty's death crushed me because she had been through it all with me. We truly love dogs and we love animals on Basic Folk. Uh, I'd love to hear about your experience with animal companionship, what it means to you, and how do you try to live up to what animals give us? Yeah, so... This is perfect because everybody's probably been hearing a little bit of Georgia Peach in the background. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like I'll probably always be a dog owner. And I'm a dog person. I, I love cats too, but I'm allergic to, like, I don't know, probably at least half cats. So I'm always scared. You're just not trying hard enough. <laughs> I did take, so I, I did take two cats in one time and I started getting asthma with them living in my house. So I did try. I felt like when I couldn't breathe, breathe anymore, that's when I should give up. But, um, yeah, I'm, 
I do love dogs, and and uh, I think just the the type of unconditional love that they they give you, and I think the fact that they don't speak. <laughs> um, I mean, they do speak. Like, I mean, I feel like I I can tell. You know, they. I think they are very telepathic, and they can sense a lot. I don't know what else to say. I, I just, cause I just, I love dogs so much and, and I've been lucky to have a couple really great dogs too. Yeah. There's been some very good dog songs this year that have come out. Oh, nice. Included. Uh, Maya DeVitri has a one on her record and Amy Ray has one and Steve Forbert had a good dog song. Cool. And Melissa Carper. Oh, thank you. I've got other dog songs. Um, I, that I have not recorded. I, I wrote one called You Dog, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, which is kind of from the dog's point of view about you coming home smelling like other dogs. So, oh yeah. <laughs> Plot twist. Other, yeah, other dogs that you've been petting. But, and then I, I wrote a song with Brendan Lee recently that that is about dogs. It's called When My Dog Didn't Like You. <laughs> but yeah i i enjoy i know i have more dog songs too yeah i wrote a song for betty it's called betty boo yeah so that song i wrote for her when she was still alive well um before i let you go will you do a quick lightning round what sure what is that well uh it's when i ask you lighthearted, fun questions about yourself, and we have quick answers, quick back and forth. Okay. Q and A. I'll give it a try. All right. I'll give it a try. Okay. <laughs> First question. Without thinking about it too hard, what color is your soul? Um, blue. What is your least favorite household chore? Hmm. I'm not supposed to think very hard. I think I don't like to. I don't like to do the laundry. Oh, well, I do. I'll come over and do everyone's laundry. (laughs) Which would you prefer as a friend, a sheep or a goat? Hmm. I've heard that sheep are easier to handle, like, you know, over the course of their lives. Baby goats are just so freaking cute, though. I mean, baby baby sheep are are cute, too. Since I've written a song about goats, I'm going to say goat. Who is your celebrity crush? Celebrity crush. Oh, gosh. Um, well, the first person that popped in my head was Nora Jones. Solid. Thank you. Um, what is the best gas station delicacy? Oh, that, um, let's see. There's not much I can eat from a gas station. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, this is supposed to be lightning. I'm going to say pistachios. Okay, that's a good one. What is your most useful non-musical skill? Starting a bow drill fire. (laughs) All right, last question. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Alaska. Nice. Cool. Melissa Carper, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been so great to get to know you and talk to you, and I love your new album. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Cindy. appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy Howes. Alex Stanton composes our music. 
Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can search for Basic Folk on the SiriusXM app. You can check out our website, basicfolk.com, or you can listen wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for being here and making it all the way to the end. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Mm, Bye.